Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week, we take off into the future of aviation. Will flights get faster? Could we see a fully electric plane? And can our own naked scientists land a commercial aircraft? We'll find out. Plus, in the news, a new way of disguising cancer drugs as fat, sharks are in danger, and how do you make a bad joke funnier? I'm Adam Murphy. I'm Izzy Clark, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, let's take a look at the news this week. Every two minutes, someone in the UK is diagnosed with cancer, and there are a range of options when it comes to treatment. Frequently, though, chemotherapy drugs designed to hit fast-growing cells like cancers are used. But not all rapidly growing cells are cancerous, so there are inevitably side effects. Now, scientists at Northwestern University have found that dressing up chemotherapy drugs as fat molecules makes it easier to concentrate their actions on cancer cells alone, Izzy Clark heard how it works from Nathan Janeski. We're hoping to disguise cancer medicine as fat molecules, as nutrients. There are proteins, for example, that circulate within your blood that will transport long-chain fatty acids around the blood. And then there are receptors on cells of all types that are hungry to consume these uh, proteins and the fat that they carry. Tumor cells are very, very interested in this as a nutrient source. They're dividing and they're growing and they're wanting to uh, consume fat and energy. And so we connect drugs to one half of this modified fat and then allow the other half of the fat to engage the body's transport systems. So you sort of hitchhike on the tumor's systems for acquiring and consuming energy. This really is a Trojan horse cancer treatment. Right. And it really is one of the goals, right? How you can get to the point where normal tissues are, are, let's say, less damaged. The idea is to make the patient less sick by getting more of the drug to the tumour. And what is this drug that you're using and how does it get into that fatty molecule? The drug, what we would call the warhead, you know, the active part that goes and kills the cell, is called paclitaxel. In the clinic today, it's used in two main formulations. We took that same drug and the carrier, the rocket for that warhead is this fat chain, 18 carbons in a chain with what we call a, a carboxylic acid at the end. And so it's a chemical bond between the drug and that fat chain. And the preservation of that carboxylate is what tricks the body 
And how well did it work in tests? So it works very, very well. We used animal models for bone, colon, and pancreatic cancer. These are animal models of human tumors, and the human tumors will grow in, in the mouse. Uh, we were able to treat with our drug versus the clinically approved drugs and show that we increase the survival of the animals as well as uh, decreasing the size of the tumors. But just because you did that in the mouse, of course, doesn't mean that it's going to work in a person. If it does work, uh, then you have you know, an advantage over current medicines and you can get approval and help people. Why is this better than current methods? In the study, we did a head-to-head, in other words, a direct comparison with two of the FDA-approved formulations for these types of drugs. And the fact is that we have much higher doses, so we can go to higher doses because we can target better than the currently approved drugs. And so by being able to target to the tumor better, that means you can inject much more drug, and that means you can more quickly kill the tumor. At the maximum doses, what we call maximum tolerated doses, we had better efficacy uh, than the clinically approved drugs because of that targeting ability. The next step is to see if we can actually translate that to a human uh, outcome, of course. Some really exciting work. That was Nathan Gianeski, and the study was recently published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. If that could pan out, it would really mean a lot. Now, a global study of sharks has found that they're in danger of being fished over a quarter of their entire habitat. This comes from an international collaboration of marine biologists who have tracked ocean sharks to produce the first ever world map of their hotspots. By comparing the hotspots to fishing routes, they've shown that the most valuable species are in danger over almost three quarters of their entire range. Phil Sansom spoke to David Sims, one of the study's authors, who's a senior research fellow at the Marine Biological Association Laboratory in Plymouth. Pelagic means of the open ocean. And so pelagic sharks are sharks which roam the open ocean. By using satellite tracking to identify shark hotspots across the global ocean and also tracking longline fishing vessels, we found that the overlap of the shark hotspots, where they prefer to be and hang out, overlaps at least 24% of the time with these longline fishing vessels. So that's like a quarter of the entire area that sharks live in is an area that they're in danger of being fished. We couldn't track every shark, but for the 2,000, just under 2,000 sharks that we did track, yeah, 24% of the places they prefer to gather and to be were entirely overlapped by longline fishing vessels. And these longline fishing vessels, each of those vessels deploys a line that's 100 kilometres long with over 1,000 baited hooks. So that's, I mean, a serious deal for sharks, right? It is, yeah. I mean, obviously, they're attracted to the baits on these lines. And because the lines are so long, and there are thousands of these vessels across the sort of global oceans, which are trying to catch sharks, because as opposed to 20 odd years ago, sharks have a real value now. Now, let me ask you, it can't be easy to figure out where sharks gather, or where they like to live. How did you actually do it? Yeah, a project at a global scale requires a global-scale research group. There's 150 scientists across 100 institutes in 26 countries. I mean, we tagged uh, just over 1,800 different pelagic sharks. Wow. And we gathered all the satellite tracking data of all sorts of different species of pelagic sharks. We gathered it all together into a giant database. And then we were able to analyse, to explore the movements of the sharks in relation to the environment. 
And what we found was that the sharks prefer to be in areas where there are strong boundaries between different water masses with different characteristics. So fronts between different temperature water masses, for example. And these sort of transition areas, these sort of boundaries, are areas where there's usually lots of plankton. And of course, that plankton attracts in fish and squid that the sharks like to feed on. That's so interesting that you actually had to physically tag the sharks. That's it. I mean, that's the nature of this project is that it's the, the first one that's really uh, worked at the global scale for pelagic sharks. We tracked about 23 different species, including the great white shark and three species of hammerheads, actually, but also the blue shark and the short fin mako shark. And they're interesting because those two species make up about 90% of the pelagic sharks which are caught by high seas and shelf fisheries. So those two are the most commercially important. And obviously, they're the ones that we're particularly concerned about as a consequence of this study, because we found that, in fact, 76% of blue shark space use and 64% of short fin mako space use was entirely overlapped by these longline fishing boats. Now, let me ask you, because you keep saying overlap, but how do you know that overlap necessarily means they're in trouble? Yeah, it's a really good question. We actually thought about that. And in the study, we actually calculated the fishing effort that was going on and related that fishing effort to actual landings. So these are tons of sharks that have been recorded on the global databases. And what we found was a positive relationship between the amount of fishing effort and the magnitude of landings of those species. So there was a direct link between the fishing effort, the overlap and the mortality. So what do we do? What we propose is that the maps we've produced of where the hotspots are can really start to become the foundational blueprint of shark conservation at the global scale. And so where we have these shark hotspots, it could be that these are the, the sites that policymakers and scientists may select to protect sharks. That's not to say that that's the only tool that can come from this sort of study. I mean, one thing that this does suggest is that the surveillance of megafauna-like sharks is actually a very powerful way in which you can start to look at a new, uh, a new management of the oceans. If you know where the, the sharks are and maybe other megafauna like turtles and whales, it might be possible then to focus where the enforcement happens and for focusing where particular patrol vessels might be, for example. So I think the future holds this much more broad and sort of satellite-based, technology-led conservation, which I think for sharks will be absolutely crucial. And that is one you can absolutely sink your teeth into. Thanks to David Sims from the Marine Biological Association Laboratory in Plymouth. And you can read that study in the journal Nature. Still to come on The Naked Scientists, can you make a bad joke funnier? And buckle up, later on we're flying through the future of flight. In this hot weather, many of us will be flocking to parks and gardens. All too often, though, you'll likely come across a cigarette butt lying on the grass. And apart from being unsightly, a study from Anglia Ruskin University suggests that these butts can harm local plant life. Danielle Green sprinkled pot plants with cigarette butts and measured the impact they had on how her own plants grew. So what did she find? Emma Hilljard caught up with her at a local park to find out. There's one. There's one. Actually, there's a cluster of three, yeah. And they are the most common litter item that's found on clean-ups and stuff like that. 
accounting for 30% of, of litter in some places. So we need to get rid of them? Yeah, we need to bin them, bin the butt. What made you interested in this study? So walking around the parks and all these beautiful green spaces around Cambridge that we have and just seeing cigarette butts everywhere. And I started to think, I wonder if this is having an effect on the plants. It's quite a simple pot experiment where we had either grass seeds or clover seeds and we had a piece of wood as a control. We had menthol versus regular. We had smoked versus unsmoked to see if it was the plastic in the filter was having an effect as well. Most cigarette filters are made out of a bio-based plastic called cellulose acetate, which is derived from plants, essentially. They don't biodegrade very quickly. Some studies say two years, some say more than ten. Furthermore, actually, cigarette butts are made up of thousands of tiny little microfibers, which are a type of microplastic, essentially. So even when they do break down, there's a possibility that they're still persisting as microplastics. So every time we throw a cigarette butt onto the grass, we are effectively throwing plastic into the ground and into the ecosystem of the plants. Yep, exactly. When you've smoked the cigarette, you're also containing all those toxins from the cigarette into it as well. So there's thousands of different types of chemicals and toxins that have been shown to have effects on different plants and animals on their own. Nicotine would, would be the most obvious one. They use cigarette butts in some countries to prevent malaria so they might put them in water bodies to try to kill the larvae of mosquitoes for example so there are some uses for them as well Um, but it's obviously not what you want. In your study you've tested unsmoked cigarettes, smoked cigarettes so just the filter is left and you've left some tobacco in some of them so it's half smoked. Yeah exactly. So what did you see? I expected to see that the ones with the tobacco would have a stronger effect but overall Even the unsmoked filters had really similar effects to those that were smoked. In some cases, there were stronger effects of the smoked cigarettes. But overall, the plastic itself is decreasing plant germination and growth. And the root biomass of clover was reduced by around half. So the roots are the bit of the plant that take in the nutrients and the water from the soil. So if the root mass is smaller, does that mean they get less food and water? Yeah, so similar effects have been found in response to drought, for example. So plant roots might shrink, and in this case, first of all, they're not stable, and secondly, they're not able to absorb as much water and and nutrients as well. So they won't grow as well, they won't grow as fast? Yeah, exactly. There has been another study done in aquatic ecosystems. They also discovered that even the unsmoked butts had an impact on fish, so freshwater and marine fish, and could actually lead to mortality. They found a stronger effect of the smoked ones. What would you say to people that smoke and throw their cigarettes all over the floor? I'd say it's just as bad as littering any other sort of plastic, and please don't. This study has actually gotten attention worldwide, and there have been quite a few anti-littering campaigners that have been tweeting it and sharing it on their social media. So hopefully there is going to be some action coming from this to either create more bins, raise awareness that they are plastic, you know, do whatever we have to do to reduce it. There are some studies that are actually recycling cigarette butts and using them as you know, some sort of building materials and stuff like that. So we, if we can reuse them, that would be even better. Danielle Green from Anglia Ruskin University. The paper published in the journal Ecotoxicology and Environmental Safety is the first one to consider the damage that cigarette butts can cause to plants. 
People with haemophilia don't produce enough of a critical factor that helps blood to clot. As a result, they have to inject themselves regularly with a replacement form of the factor to avoid suffering lethal bleeds into their joints and organs. But within a year or two, it should be possible to offer patients with haemophilia a long-term solution using a gene therapy technique that enables cells in the liver to produce the missing blood clotting factor. Sandy McRae is the CEO of the US-based company Sangamo Therapeutics that's developing and conducting clinical trials on the new technique. Chris Smith asked him about the therapies the company are exploring. So I think the one that people talk about most is for haemophilia, which is the blood disorder that the royal family suffered from in Victorian times. And now there are two or three companies, including mine, that have medicines that will be on the market in the next three to four years and provide an option for these patients that they won't have to take factor every day or two but we'll have one injection and then they'll be done for five to ten years are you saying then that you've got a way of of genetically modifying a haemophiliac so they can make the thing they don't have so we need to be careful how we describe that in gene therapy you park a version of the gene in the cell so it's not stitched in and it's not forever and it may only last five to ten years but for these patients five to ten years is a long time compared to having to inject yourself every day What's the strategy then? What do you actually do to get that gene into them and where do you park it? That's a good question. So we borrow a virus and the virus um, goes to the liver where it infects the liver cells. Once it infects the liver cells, it releases the bit of DNA that then produces the factor that the patient was missing and the liver acts like a factory, releasing a little amount of factor each day. What's the virus that you use to get the gene into the liver cells? It's called an adeno-associated virus, so it's related somewhat to the cold virus. And how does the liver tolerate that? Is it quite comfortable to have this virus going in there? Mostly. Most patients tolerate it very well. Occasionally patients will get a slight inflammation of their liver, and that's something that we need to monitor carefully. And so for the first three to six months of the patient's treatment, they'll be having their liver enzymes measured on a weekly basis. Very few have had any trouble with this course of treatment. And how much virus do you actually have to administer to the person in order to treat them? Because you've got to presumably hit a lot of cells in order to get them making enough of the factor. And that means you're going to need a lot of virus. You need to hit sufficient number of cells to produce the protein. You give a very large number of, of virus particles, e to the 11, e to the 12, e to the 13. These are m- more than grains of sand on the beach. That's 100 billion plus, yes. isn't it? Yes, it's a huge amount. Can you make that much easily in the lab? Because that's been one of the problems that's held back this field in the past, is actually scaling up the amount of virus you need to do it in a way that's going to be deliverable for the numbers of patients that we need to treat. Uh, Absolutely right. One of the most important things in this field is having reliable manufacturing. It's possible to do this. It, uh, you make large vats of virus, a bit like homebrew, and you, you create virus in, in the billions, as you describe. It needs to be done with quality because patient safety is the most important thing. The liver cells aren't long-lived like a nerve cell, though, are they? They turn over, they die off, and they're replaced. So that means, presumably, you're going to have to keep doing this to keep the levels topped up in the person. Our liver replaces about a seventh of its cells every year. So over the course of 10 years, you'll be replacing a lot of the cells. 
gene therapy doesn't pass it on to the daughter cells, to the next generation. We need to follow these patients out for a period of time to see how long it lasts, what's the durability. But if I was a patient, if I could get five to ten years of benefit from it, I think that's a, that's a good balance of benefit and risk. So where are you in the trials process now with this? So we're in the proof-of-concept trial. We've seen some really powerful results from, from our virus and our construct. And then we're at the stage of handing it over to our, our partner, Pfizer, who will take it into phase three and then to registration. One problem that people who have to inject factor eight for haemophilia experience from time to time is because they're putting into their body something that their body doesn't naturally make, the immune system regards it as hostile and you get an immune response against it. And that means that actually they then don't get any therapeutic benefit through injecting it. Is there a risk? Because you're putting in something that some of these haemophiliacs aren't naturally making with your virus, you're going to have the same problem. Great question. And there, there's a cohort of patients with um, antibodies to the, to the factor that mean that they would be excluded from the current trials. And there's other medicines that other companies are developing for them. Nobody has yet seen that reaction um, from patients with gene therapy. And it's, it's perhaps because it's given chronically in low levels and perhaps something to do with the liver that we can avoid that. But of course we need to follow these patients long term to make sure they get continued benefit from it. How do you actually get the virus just into the liver? We infuse it into a vein. It's a very unremarkable process where the patient waits for an hour or two while a drip slowly drops the virus into the vein and it manages to find its way there. Sandy McRae from Sangamo Therapeutics speaking with Chris Smith at the recent Biotechnology Innovation Organisation meeting in Philadelphia. Finally, what is orange and sounds like a parrot? A carrot! Even for naked scientist levels, that is truly <laughs> awful. I genuinely love terrible jokes, but it seems that most people don't agree with me. So is there a way to make them seem funnier? Neuroscientists at University College London tried to see if terrible dad jokes could be made funnier by adding laughter to them. They played jokes with and without laughter to groups of autistic and neurotypical adults to see how they responded. A key difference between the two groups is how they mentalise, that is, how they think about other people thinking, says Sophie Scott, author of this study. So you might expect a difference in how people respond to laughter as well. And Keita and Nirban spoke to Sophie to find out more. What we did was we took a bunch of jokes and we deliberately set out to find like a really bad group of jokes because we wanted it to be possible for them to be funnier. And then we add laughter onto the jokes. And what we did was we used laughter that was either being produced by someone who's absolutely helplessly laughing. (laughs) Or we have those same people laughing, but we've told them to laugh. So they're laughing to command. And that laughter is less intense. (laughs) And then we gave them back to people and we asked people to rate the jokes again. And now all they're doing is listening to the joke. But now there's also laughter. And what we find is adding in any laugh makes the joke seem funnier. And then the more intense the laughter, the funnier it makes the joke. So what we're actually seeing is people are processing the laughter implicitly and it's influencing what they actually think of the joke. So is this sort of why TV and radio use these laughter tracks in comedies to make people laugh more? The original introduction of laughter tracks, which was for comedy on the radio, that was done because people at home didn't necessarily realise they were listening to something that was supposed to be funny. Uh, So they started using a a live audience frequently. (laughs) 
and of course laughter normally happens you know in a group with other people so it's a strong cue to people that this is comedy what these data suggest is that this is not only telling you it's okay to laugh it's also giving you a sense that the whole thing is just funnier so who did you ask these jokes to we asked them to two groups of people so we either had neurotypical participants and we also had a group of adults with autism and what we found actually was that the results were pretty much the same for both groups so both the neurotypical and the autistic adults have the same influence of laughter so the the more intense the laughter is the funnier it is making the joke the only difference that we found is that the autistic adults rated all the jokes as funnier so they are possibly being a bit more generous to the jokes than our neurotypical population were the only thing that is worth bearing in mind and Sarah White a collaborator on this paper she's pointed out that first of all our autistic adults are they're high functioning so we might be seeing an element of compensation here and she's also found when you look at autistic adults performing mentalizing tasks which is classically something that children with autism really can struggle with what she finds is that frequently they pass those tests they perform quotes normally on those tests but what she's found is if you scan those autistic adults they are producing the same behavior but using different brain regions than the neurotypical population so we might still be looking at compensation that's resting on on different sort of neurobiology so that's the next step for us we're going to take this into the scanner and see if we can unpick whether or not the behaviour and the neurobiology of laughter is the same in the two groups or if the behaviour is the same but the neurobiological bases still might be different. So do we know much about the neurobiological basis of laughter at the moment? What we have found is that you certainly get a lot of facial mirror activation when you're listening to laughter, which you might expect from a behavioural contagion. It's not confined to laughter. You also get it for positive emotions like cheering, but um, those are also still social emotions. You also get lots of activation associated with people trying to work out what the laughter means. You also get lots of auditory activation, particularly for spontaneous laughter, probably because you hear sounds you don't hear in any other context. So actually we can get a lot of different um, neural systems activated by laughter and it will be interesting to see which of any or all of these are involved when the laughter is influencing how funny a joke sounds. So what's the worst joke that you heard during the study? I think the worst is what day is the best day for cooking? Friday. That is stressful. Can I only apologise? <laughs> well, maybe if you add some canned laughter to that, it'll make your audience laugh. Well, em- empirically, that, the data suggests that might be correct. <laughs> it means it, certainly. That was Sophie Scott from UCL talking about her study published in the journal Current Biology. And if you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've covered so far, all the papers and transcripts can be found on our website, thenakedscientists.com. Or check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Naked Scientist to see what we get up to when we're not sat behind these microphones. Now, I just want to squeeze in something from the mailbox. Louise Sherman in America has been in touch and she says, I just found your excellent podcast and listening to the discussion about excuses, that's from a few weeks ago, it made me feel like you might enjoy hearing this story from my daughter who's a lawyer in North Carolina. A man who was driving a wagon pulled by a mule was accused of drunk driving. His excuse? I wasn't driving at all. I had fallen asleep. The mule was driving. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah, I really like that one. And if you want to get in touch with the show, if you have something to say like Louise, you can do so via our website or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. 
The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Izzy Clark, and with Adam Murphy. And for the next half hour, we're taking off into the aviation world. In 2018, there were 38 million flights across the globe. That's over 100,000 flights a day. The industry is massive and it's only getting bigger. But where is it heading? To find out, we're nosediving into the future of aviation. So fasten your seatbelts and put up your tray as we head into the second half of the show. To start, which would you prefer? A plane flown by humans or one that is fully controlled by autonomous systems? Currently, aircrafts are controlled manually by a pilot, but they can also switch over onto autopilot, an automatic system. In some cases, pilots can be in full control of the airplane for as little as 10 minutes throughout an entire flight. To find out exactly how safe this level of automation is for autopilot and whether it could replace humans altogether, Matthew Hall set out to Cambridge Airport. Autopilot in commercial aircraft has come to the point where it's been implemented in almost all aspects of flight, all except the takeoff process. It's a little scary to think about just how much of our safety while airborne is in the hands of an automated software. We do also have the pilots that can take control at any time in case of an emergency, but what if something were to happen to those pilots? Are we at a point now in automation where a novice could grab control of the plane and potentially land without incident? In a mission to uncover more about present and future autopilot systems, I took off toward Virtual Aviation Airline Training, which is home to a flight simulator used to train pilots for commercial airplanes. So today you're going to be seeing an airliner simulator. It's the Airbus A320 simulator, and it's a device that is used to train pilots, and it simulates the flight deck of an Airbus A320. That's Ben Bonus, an airplane pilot and flight simulator instructor who is going to coach me through the landing process in his flight simulator. So the simulators are as close to the real aircraft as you can get. We use a visual system that simulates the outside environment, but all of the, the switches and the controls within the simulator are exactly the same in terms of look and feel as per the real aircraft. So the autopilot has to replicate what the autopilot would do on the real aircraft for us to to have the aircraft or the simulator certified for what we use it for. So it is 100% exactly the same as per the real aircraft. The only difference with the simulator, of course, is that there isn't motion. It's a fixed-base simulator. But apart from that, everything is exactly the same as the real aircraft. But it's a simulation. What are some of the, the controls that you can do with the simulator that you can't do in real flight? We have the ability to freeze the simulator, so if we want to cover some points of learning, we can just freeze it and then talk about the particular manoeuvre or what we're looking at in the simulator, so we can freeze time. We are able to simulate different conditions, we can introduce failures so that the trainees can see how the aircraft reacts, and we can change the position of the aircraft as well, so we could one minute be making an approach into a particular airfield, and then ten minutes later we could reposition it to another airfield to look at a takeoff. If something were to go wrong and the pilots were unable to fly this plane and one of the customers in the back had to come up and and fly this thing, had to land it, is the autopilot in a condition where a novice like myself could take control and land a commercial-sized aircraft? 
I'm confident that we can talk you through how the autopilot flies and the different modes we can use to operate it, and we'll see if you can land the aircraft yourself. I'm confident you'll be able to. Well, no pressure then. Ben then took me through an open hangar full of planes housing the simulator entrance. He opened the doors, and I was immediately in awe at the sight from the other side. The simulator itself is a massive metal box, easily the size of a living room. And on the inside of the metal box, half of the interior was just dull white walls. But the other half was alive, with the lights and controls of a perfect copy-and-paste replica of a cockpit from a commercial aircraft. Ben shut the soundproof doors, turned on the simulator, sat me down in the captain's chair, and programmed the scene for our in-flight emergency situation. The, the pilots are down. I've been thrown into the front. I'm at 35,000 feet, and I have no idea if I can land this thing. So you need to come forward. The first step, activate the autopilot, which is turned on simply by pressing a button labeled AP1. The second step, descend to 20,000 feet, which is controlled by turning a dial anti-clockwise until the number 20,000 is displayed on a screen. And just like that, the plane cuts its throttle and starts descending with no further control from me, where it will eventually level off on its own. The third step, once cleared by air traffic control, is to get to 1,300 feet in preparation for landing. Okay, so we've now descended from 35,000 feet, and we find ourselves three miles from the runway, 1,000 feet above the ground, currently flying 140 knots, and now it's Matt's job to get us on the ground. Oh, find out if Matthew and Ben actually do reach the ground in one piece later on in the show. Oh, I just don't think I would ever want to be in that situation. I don't like flying at the best of times, so for me, the faster the plane, the better. I can reach my destination quickly, and hopefully I won't have to spend that much time on a plane. But could we have faster planes? Could a supersonic flight, that's travelling faster than the speed of sound, be a commercial option? Michael Carley is a senior lecturer from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Bath and joins us now. So, Michael... Tell us more about supersonic flight. Supersonic flight is flight faster than the speed of sound. So faster than 770 miles an hour if you're at or near sea level. Typical altitudes for commercial aircraft, you'd be doing more than about 670 miles an hour. Wow. What could it do for us? What is its potential? Really, the point is that it's very fast. So for people who feel a need to not spend much time in the air and want to get to wherever they're going in a hurry and who can afford to spend the money to make that worthwhile, it, that, that is the advantage. The issue for a lot of us would be that the amount of money you would need to spend to travel that fast just isn't worth it. Right, I see. And we saw something like this in the past, which was Concorde. So what was that and what went wrong there? Concorde was a joint Anglo-French high-speed aircraft, so it flew at about twice the speed of sound. Technologically, it was a massive success. It advanced the technology in all sorts of ways. It did successfully fly across the Atlantic at twice the speed of sound. The thing that used to impress people was that fighter pilots would occasionally meet a Concorde. The fighter pilot would be sitting in a cockpit at the same sort of height but having to wear a special pressure suit people on Concorde were having a nice meal sitting in their shirt leaves in an air-conditioned cabin so it had comfort it had speed it had everything except it wasn't economical it cost about twelve thousand dollars in modern 
terms to fly from New York to Heathrow and back again, which is about three times the price of a modern first class flight. It was very, very noisy, which made it completely unacceptable to people living on the ground. And in the end, it just wasn't possible to sell enough of them to make it economical to run. Now, economics aside, how are planes like this able to fly so fast? Um, partly utterly monstrous engines. Um, <laughs> and that's, that, that is one of the things you need. You need to generate a lot of thrust to overcome the drag that's involved in flying at these speeds. You need a specially shaped wing. So Concorde is one of the very few utterly recognisable aircraft. People who have no interest in aeroplanes can recognise Concorde. So it's a delta wing. It's got a very swept back leading edge. That is essentially what allows it to fly at those speeds. There are a couple of other issues. The control is difficult. Matthew, I'm sure, will be able to tell you how hard it was to land an aeroplane. The problem <laughs> with something like Concorde was that you have to keep the nose so high you can't see over it when you're when you're landing or taking off because of the difficulties of landing and taking off at low speed, which you have to do with those monstrous engines. So there are particular difficulties that go with high-speed aircraft that aren't there for pretty conventional, economical, normal airliners that are in service today. And where are we now, though, with these super fast planes? Could we see something like this make a return? We could. Um, There are a few options, depending on who you are. One of the things to notice is that even the military don't have supersonic transport aircraft. Supersonic aircraft in military use are purely for combat. There have been proposals in the past to convert essentially fighters into small supersonic transports for business purposes. There is one company which has just placed a firm order for 20 supersonic business jets. So they'll carry about 10 passengers. So realistically, we might see business jets or supersonic aircraft for business use in the near future, next five or 10 years, it's unlikely that we'll see commercial aircraft being operated by airlines. And what are some of the issues that they would have to overcome, regardless of whether this is, you know, business or commercial? Big one is going to be fuel cost. They burn a lot of fuel. One of the things that we need to deal with is flying less. Supersonic aircraft, there won't be very many of them, but they are disproportionately high consumers of fuel. So that will become an issue depending on how regulation goes in future. Nobody has solved the noise problem yet, although NASA seem to be getting close to it. In the next year or two, they should have a demonstrator flying, which will reduce noise to acceptable levels. What they they say is it'll be like a car door being closed rather than a massive bang if one of these aircraft goes over. So they're the two big ones, solving the issues that allow you to operate the aircraft Most of the other problems have been solved in a technological sense on Concorde, but we still haven't solved the problem of what it costs to run them and how we get the noise down. So do you think we will ever see something like a commercial supersonic plane in the future? It's it's not likely. We've worked out how to fly reasonably economically with fairly conventional aircraft. If we are going to spend that kind of money again... Um, I suspect some people are going to go for bust and just use suborbital flight. So in effect, you use a small spacecraft. And then instead of thinking about three or four hours between London and New York, you're talking about one hour from London to Sydney. And in effect, you bring space technology down to Earth rather than trying to bring military fighter technology to the flying public.
Well, wouldn't that be something? Thank you so much. That was Michael Carley from the University of Bath. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Still to come in The Naked Scientists, will Matt be able to land a flight simulator and we're painting a picture on sunsets for Question of the Week. But before that, we've been talking about the future of aviation and that future might be electric, given the batteries are overall a cleaner energy source than fuel. Fully electric cars are everywhere now and batteries are constantly improving their capacity by about 5% each year. But that being said, why is there still no Tesla equivalent for airplanes? To find out, Izzy spoke with Paul Robertson, a senior lecturer in electrical engineering from Cambridge University. There are some leisure aircraft, which are just one or two seaters, which are purely electric. But they're very much limited by their range and flight time. So typically, up to about an hour's flight time will be what's currently achieved in these sorts of aircraft. It's a hot research topic at the moment, looking at moving up to larger aircraft from you know, two-seater, four-seater, nine-seaters up to airline sort of scale. But one of the major issues which limits electric aircraft is the, is the power density in the batteries. By that I mean, for a given weight of battery, how much energy can you store compared to burning fuel using a conventional engine. And at the current time, equivalent weight-for-weight, batteries or fuel, then burning fuel gives you about 20 times the energy that you'll get from batteries. Wow. And what about the mechanics going on, say, with a car compared to a plane? Does that impact anything at all? In cars, when weight is an important issue in cars, for performance and, to a lesser extent, for range... But in an aircraft, it's absolutely critical because the total weight of the aircraft determines how much power you need to fly. And so if you're storing a certain amount of energy, that tells you how far or how long you can fly for. By increasing the weight of batteries, for example, in an aircraft, you make the overall aircraft heavier. It therefore requires more power. So if you just double the number of batteries, the weight of batteries, that does not double your range because you've paid a penalty for the extra weight that you're carrying. If we were in a situation where we could get rid of all of the fuel with the batteries we've got at the moment, how far could a plane go? If you were to take out of, say, an airliner, you took the engines off, you, you take all the fuel tanks out, and you replace that equivalent mass, that weight, with batteries and electric motors. If you could do that, your flight time would probably be around half an hour. <laughs> That's not very much at all. So it is, it is rather limited. However, there are some applications where even short flights of that sort of endurance are useful. City-to-city city hopping is a possibility. We still, though, have the issue, how do we recharge the batteries or do we swap them out? What do we do in order to refuel the aircraft? Because the infrastructure to do that is very different to what we currently have, which is just piping liquid fuels around. So it isn't just the technology of the the batteries and the aircraft themselves. In any sort of commercial application, we have to think about the infrastructure which goes around it. And what are some of the other major issues associated with, say, an all-electric commercial aircraft? Okay, so we've talked about the batteries, which is the main one. There are lots of other things which concern us if we're going to commercial aviation. 
We need to look at legislation and certification. So that's what makes the aircraft safe. How do we prove it's safe and how do we operate it? If we change the propulsion system from our normal aviation fuel you know, to electric, then, as I say, we need the ground infrastructure. We need all the testing and qualification work to be done. Uh, we need to rewrite the manuals on how the pilots are trained for these propulsion systems. We need to change the simulators. So there's a lot behind commercial aviation. And in fact, the regulations are really only just beginning to be looked at now for how do you certify these sorts of aircraft. It's not so much an issue at the very small scale. Leisure aircraft, there are experimental categories we can work in there. But when you move to passenger carrying the general public, then it's a very different regime. And everything needs to change, basically, as we move from our current fuel-burning approach to a purely electric approach. Could we see a combination of fuel and, and batteries? Is that something that would be possible? Yes, that is. That's what we would call a, a hybrid electric propulsion system. What we're doing in that case is we are, we are assisting the conventional fuel-burning engine, whether it be a turbine or a, a piston type of engine. We're assisting that with an electrical boost. Or we're combining an electrical machine with that fuel-burning engine so that we can improve the overall efficiency of the system. And so would it be that you'd have the batteries to get off the ground but you then use fuel for once you reach your correct altitude. Yes, that's, that's the basic idea. Burning fuel, because of the, the large amount of energy it stores in a, in a given mass, then that's a good way to propel yourself a very large distance. But the addition of an electric boost means that you can optimise the size of that fuel-burning engine for that long cruise condition. And the extra power you need for takeoff and climb is provided by the, the electrical system. And what about going fully electric? Could that be a possibility? It's a possibility, but I think it's quite a long way off. The, the density of the energy storage in batteries is not high enough at the moment, and it'll probably be some decades before we can store enough energy to, to take an aircraft to match the sort of ranges which we get now. So going transatlantic, transcontinental, it will be very difficult for a purely electric aircraft to do that for some time yet. Looks like we've got some work to do. That was Paul Robertson from Cambridge University. And it's time to check back in with Naked Scientist Matthew Hall and Ben Bonus from Virtual Aviation to see if Matt can land a plane. Last we heard, they were a 1,000 feet above the ground preparing for their landing in a flight simulator with Ben coaching Matt through the descent. Let's find out their fate. So they tell you to push this one here. That is the auto throttle. Push. And here we have the thrust lever. So if you just move them forward. Okay. The auto throttle maintains the speed of the aircraft by adjusting the thrust of the plane and keeping it at the correct altitude before descending. We also need to slow down. The aircraft has what we call an auto brake. So as we touch down, brakes will automatically engage and slow down the aircraft. So if you just select this button here. I set the braking the medium with the push of a button and we were almost at the runway. There was just one more button to press. That's our approach button and that's telling the aircraft to follow an instrument landing system to touch down. Landing was imminent. The last piece of the plane puzzle was to pull a giant lever back, cutting all the thrust as soon as air control instructed me. And we were almost there. <laughs> Here we go. 40, 30, 20, 10. Retard. 
That's good. So you can see the aircraft touches down. Keeps us nicely on the centre line and you can see our speed reducing now. Welcome to London Stansted. Woo! We're alive, hey! <laughs> and all it took were three buttons and a lever. Do not be fooled by the simplicity though because it has taken over a century of development for the autopilot software to get this good at its job. With all the passengers safely on the ground, I sat down with Ben to ask him about the future development of autopilot systems. A lot of the advancements lately have been in communication, so how we communicate with air traffic control on the ground. So a lot of that is becoming text messages between the aircraft and the ground controllers. But from an autopilot point of view, they are extremely accurate, they're extremely reliable, and you can see today how they can best be employed to help us as pilots. Absolutely. On the note of that, though, is there a fear in the industry that this software will get so developed, so keen on landing, takeoff, flying, that we'll see a future of a pilotless cockpit? I think anything like that is is certainly a long way off. I don't think we're going to see certainly manufacturers testing pilotless flights for at least the next 30, 40, maybe 50 years. I did not think landing a plane like that would be so simple. I still don't like my chances, though. Ben Bonus from Virtual Aviation, soaring in the virtual skies with Matthew Hall. And you can check out our Instagram, at Naked Scientist, to see the pictures of the flight simulator. Well, while electric propulsion remains in development, liquid fuel reigns supreme, which is not good news for air pollution emissions. A 747 burns, on average, five gallons of fuel per mile. Multiply that by several hundred miles of flight and then by several million flights a year, the emission toll adds up pretty quickly. To find out how much of an impact this has on the environment, and if there's a solution, we're talking to Hector Pollitt, Director and Head of Modelling at Cambridge Econometrics. So Hector, how much pollution does the aviation industry produce? Thank you. Uh, Yeah, that's a a good question. We look up into the sky, we see aeroplanes with vapour trails, and we think, oh, this must be causing a lot of pollution. To some extent, this is true. However, at the moment... The uh, aviation sector accounts only for 2% of global emissions. The concern is that whereas most of the other sectors in the economy are starting to decrease emissions, in aviation we're very much seeing the opposite going on. And it's predicted that in the coming decades, overall emissions from aviation could triple. So where is this increase coming from? Why are we seeing it going up? Yeah, in summary, we're seeing more flights overall, more aeroplanes taking off and landing, so more fuel being burnt um, and more uh, emissions resulting. In the UK, there's this constant debate about the expansion of Heathrow in the southeast and uh, the airport capacity. Of course, that is another way of enabling more flights. Even more important than that is the growing size of the middle class in the developing world and all of these people with their newfound wealth who want to go to other countries, other continents and see other parts of the world for themselves. Now, we heard about the issues and challenges behind electric flight, but are there any other solutions being tested or implemented right now that can help? Yeah, and I think when it comes to climate change, we're always looking to technology for the solutions. We heard about electrification as one possibility in aeroplanes. There are also potential biofuel options that are out there in the future. Again, these are still under development and we don't know how that will go, but they may be something that's a bit more realistic in the shorter term. Also, there are some specific short-run measures that would improve efficiency in aeroplanes. I mean, one option would be just even getting the airlines to use the latest flight planes available to improve efficiency. 
Um, also reducing taxiing on runways. Uh, for example, planes could be pulled out rather than operating under their own thrust in the airports. And a more rational flight path through the um, air traffic control services. And that could reduce overall distance per flight, uh, which would help a bit. But these are only going short run solutions. You mentioned biofuel. What exactly is that and kind of what state is that in? It's an area where there is a lot of research going into at the moment. Um, it hits the, some of the same issues that uh, we heard with the electrification about the power to weight ratio in the planes. I suspect at some point we will start to see a blended fuel coming in, a bit like we have in petrol in, in our cars. So we will start to see an increasing proportion of jet fuel kerosene being mixed with biofuels. It's still at reasonably early stage, though. We can't say anything for sure on this topic. What actually would they be mixing in with, say, kerosene? Yeah, that's a good question. And I suppose it really depends on how the technology will go. Um, we hear quite a lot about sort of algae-based research and next-generation biofuels. So something that's a bit different to the uh, corn that's grown and converted into biodiesel that we put in our cars at the moment. What's the future here? Do we see an end to this problem? It's going to be very difficult to stop people from flying, I think, particularly in the developing world. I think when it comes to climate change, though, the state we're at now, and um, not least we're seeing the record temperatures last week, I think we really need to sort of throw everything that we can at the problem. So I would propose a multi-pronged approach. Yes, let's try to reduce our own flying a bit. Putting a tax on aviation fuel, which is currently pretty much tax-free at the moment, would certainly help with that. Consider airport capacity, whether it's really necessary going forward. Uh, let's use the most efficient planes that are available. Let's put in these other efficiency measures as well and do the best that we can. With that, uh, let's see where we can go with these new technologies as well. Just throw research resources into it and maybe something will pay off in the long run. So Hector Pollitt, Director and Head of Modelling at Cambridge Econometrics, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to all of our other guests this week, Ben Bonus, Michael Carley and Paul Robertson. So it seems that we need some better batteries and a better way of dealing with fuel. And now to wrap up the show, we have our question of the week. And Keita and Urban has helped us paint the picture of an answer to this question from Monique. Can you tell from a painting or a photo if it's sunrise or a sunset? First, we put it on the forum and got all your suggestions. Evan AU suggests looking at the timestamp on your photo, which I think is cheating. Kyle SPO recommends looking for known landmarks, but that relies on you already knowing something about the landscape. So we turn to James Gurney, painter and creator of the series Dinotopia, to ask him for his thoughts on this. There's nothing fundamentally different about the light effects at sunset or sunrise, and there's no way to tell which you're looking at from the light and color effects alone. The cause of those light effects are the same. Sunlight travels through more atmosphere as the rays approach the horizontal. So passing through more air scatters out more blue wavelengths from the light rays, making the light that remains appear increasingly orange or red. Of course, this effect happens both at sunrise and at sunset when the colors are at their richest. A single photo or a painting may be able to tell you something about the altitude and the cardinal direction of the sun, and about the height and distribution of cloud layers. And some art historians have argued that paintings of sunsets after the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883 reveal colors that were more pronounced worldwide. But it can't tell you whether it's morning or evening. If there are 
are differences between sunrise and sunset, they're qualitative and subjective. In some environments, humidity and dust may be stirred up at the end of the day because of evaporation and turbulence, and these effects can increase the saturation of the colours. But you wouldn't be able to guess that from a single image. Emotional subjectivity also plays a part in our human perception of sunsets and sunrises as we experience them in time. While a sunset builds gradually to a dramatic crescendo before quickly transitioning to twilight, a sunrise starts off with a blast of color, and as Wordsworth says, the vision splendid fades into the light of common day. What about the moon? Can you tell whether it's moon rise or moon set from a picture? William Livingston from the National Solar Observatory in the USA wrote in to tell us this. In the case of the moon, every society has a favourite imagined figure marking the full moon. In the Orient and Europe, it's a hare. To North Americans, it is the lady in the moon. At moon rise, she is seen in profile, looking downward. And at moon set, her gaze is upward. Thanks for your question, Monique. Next week, we'll be answering a question from Saugat. Hello, Chris. This is Saugat from Nepal. And my question is about monsoon. Because of the monsoon, the death toll rised over 150 around India, Nepal, Pakistan and Bangladesh. So I want to know what is the exact cause of monsoon rain and how will it be affected because of the global warming? Reckon you know the answer? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's all for this week. Thank you to Matthew Hall for putting the show together. It's been great working with you for the past 10 weeks. And do join us next time when we'll be taking you on a spin around the electron. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Izzy Clark and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.